LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Paul Rosenberg of Freemansperspective.com who joins us to discuss the rise and fall of civilizations. Over the ages, great civilizations and mighty empires have come and gone in a remarkably similar pattern. From Sumer to Egypt and from Greece to Rome, all have crashed from triumph to tragedy. The British built the largest empire in history, only to see it disintegrate in the aftermath of war. Since then, the USA has assumed the mantle of the world's dominant power winning a war of attrition against the former Soviet Union whilst waging real and increasingly bloody wars for resources right across the globe. But are the days of the American empire numbered? Has it fallen prey to corruption, greed, hubris and arrogance like so many before it? Is a new power waiting in the wings to take its place? Or does the decline of US dominance mark the beginning of the end of industrial civilization as we know it? Hello and welcome, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, Paul, today we're going to discuss some of your work over at your website, freemansperspective.com, where you publish a newsletter. And uh, currently, uh, no one out there will be unaware of the fact that we're living in times of great upheaval and change globally. Chaos and confusion everywhere, whether it's climate change, war, terrorism, economic collapse, where we're being assaulted on all fronts. And you published a special report recently on your website called The Great Calendar, when this outlines the entropy cycles of civilizations. And these are cycles that govern the rise and fall of civilizations, but they take place over very long time scales, and as such are very difficult for most of us to observe. For one, we're too narrowly focused on all the problems just mentioned. Uh, you give a, a great example, uh, if people could imagine if the seasons were 400 years long, all we would know would be how the season was. And it would be very hard for us to believe that things could be any other way. Now, this profoundly affects our view of our own civilization and where it's headed if we have that attitude. But if we can grasp the scope and the nature of the cycles in this great calendar, apply it to ourselves as individuals, to our institutions which together make up society, we can gain a perspective that makes great sense of our predicament and gives us insight not only into the developments we can expect going forward, but into action that we can take. Well said, thank you. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, if for nothing else, than our, than our own uh, reducing our own internal stress and increasing our, our personal happiness, because the world makes at least some sense and you can understand what's going on. You might not like it particularly in all cases, but at least you understand what's going on and you're not being buffeted by forces that you can't see coming. And uh, crucially, you point out that these seasons of empire or cycles of civilization that basically uh, operate as work, 
entropy, failure and recharge. These are nothing new. From Sumer to Egypt, from Greece and Rome, this has happened again and again in history. And you also highlight how the golden ages of empires, that is to say when they're seemingly at the peak of their powers, how close that point can be to the beginning of terminal decline or even outright collapse. Right, exactly. The, the great golden ages that people think of, if you actually look at it on a timeline, it's shocking that the golden ages come just before the whole thing is going to collapse and all of the monuments. You know, I like Rome as an example because it's the closest to us in time and it's the closest to us more or less in temperament. Um, I mean, that's not really true, but, you know, something like that. And if you look at all the things we think of as Rome, the Colosseum, the, you know, the Pantheon, all of these great monuments, they all came not in the Republic, but in the Empire. And as the Empire is just coming over the crest and ready to go downhill fast. And it's the same thing in Greece. It's the same thing in all of them. It, it, it's, it's a shocking thing. The first time you kind of see, go, huh. All these things are happening just, just before things go bad. That's weird, but it's true. Perhaps we could, I mean, most of us who've been in, uh, taken high school science of some form or other will, you know, might remember the word entropy cropping up there. Perhaps you just say something about that, to define that in terms of, in terms of, you know, the, the scenario that you're setting out. Sure. People sometimes mistakenly think of entropy as a loss of energy. It's not a loss of energy. It's a dispersion of energy. Um, I use the example in the report of a glass and you pour into a glass of water and you put into it a bunch of ice cubes. Well, as soon as, let's say, one big piece of ice hits the water, there's a massive temperature difference between the surface of the ice and the water next to it. And if you had a properly designed motor, you could put that motor in place and do a lot of work with it. But as the temperatures even out in the glass over, let's say, an hour or two hours or whatever it may be, all of a sudden you can't get any more work out of that motor because there's no difference in temperature. Everything is evened out. The energy has dispersed. And what we then say is that the entropy in the glass has increased. There's no way to get work out of it anymore. The same amount of heat is still there. You just can't use it anymore. That's what entropy is. What we might call the first stage, even though it's kind of it is a cycle that goes round and round, but if we call the mm -hmm. first stage of this, uh, you label it as devolution and the long minima. Uh, an analogy for this, or an example of this, we might think of as the dark ages. Though you point out it's perhaps a little unfair to call the dark ages dark. The stage is the <laughs> aftermath of collapse of a civilization at an institutional level. Uh, the characteristics of empire are basically reversed. All that stuff that was built up basically goes into reverse, and at an individual right. level. Uh, we see a loss of identity because we come to identify with the institutions of government, of empire. Uh, but also during this stage, you get the first seeds of regeneration also. Right. It's actually a very interesting time and, and shockingly long. Um, you know, one of the interesting facts is that what we think of as the Dark Ages were not the only Dark Ages. There was a Dark Age of the Greeks that lasted from about 1200 to 800 B.C., and it was shockingly long, and so was ours, our dark age of you know, roughly 400 years. Why so long? Well, a big part of it is the fact that people identify so closely with the rulers of their place and time. I mean, you know, we both know how 
how rampant that is nowadays. No matter what country you're in, they think that they're special because of whatever. You know, the French have their reasons, the English and Americans have theirs, the you know, Japanese have their reasons, they all have reasons to think we're the special ones. And of course, governments cultivate that because they need people to identify with them. If they don't, they're hard to rule. So this really is a psychological blow when the empire, whatever it is, fails. People feel abandoned and don't know how to reset themselves. And it takes a surprisingly long period of time for them to do so. And that's, you know, really what the Dark Ages or these reset periods are. Now, of course, you mentioned there the idea of people thinking they're special. And I think that you could almost apply that to our civilization globally in a way, because talk of the collapse of Rome or the decline of Rome and the Dark Ages, people have a very hard time thinking that, that anything like that could happen again. They just kind of think, well, you know, our civilization isn't perfect, but it's, you know, it's near as we're going to get. And this is it now. We've arrived uh, we've learned the lessons of the past, and it's onwards and upwards, even if it's a bit bumpy. No, I, I would to God that that were true. The The fact is that we are doing precisely what Rome did. Uh, if you take a look, I, I have uh, better American numbers than anything else, being that I spent most of my life there, and I understand it very well. Um, but if you take a look at the chart of the value of U.S. dollar and the value of a Roman denarius, they're the same chart. And if you get quotes from people who were in the middle of the decline of Rome, they say the same things that are going on now. There, this one particular gentleman named Salvian the Presbyter uh, wrote in, oh, about 440 AD. Uh, he wrote a book called On the Governance of God. But in any event, he complains about the same sorts of things that people do now, saying the government didn't think anything about what they were spending. They were beyond broke, and they just kept spending like, you know, like crazy men. And nobody wanted to think about it because, you know, it was too confusing and too hard to face. The same, exactly. You could, you could put the quote and just, you know, fix up the language a little bit, and it would be the same thing people would say now. And there's all sorts of things like that. Rome went crazy with taxation at the end because what they were doing was failing. Well, it's the same thing now. I know it's the same in the UK as it is in, the, in America. If you're a productive person, you're paying easily half of your production. It's getting taken away from you every year in, in income taxes, you guys have the VAT, uh, and in a hundred other taxes and fees, seen and unseen, not to mention inflation. So, you know, our taxation levels are astronomical compared to, oh, well, compared to what they were a hundred years ago. And the same thing happened in Rome. The same thing happened in Greece and, you know, on and on. It's the same pattern. The details vary, but the pattern is the same. Mentioning Rome, actually, and the, the situation with the currency there, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to currency debasement in a bit. But just while you're talking about Rome, it's interesting that uh, an ounce of gold, what that would have bought you in Roman times, will more or less buy you the same sort of thing today. Right. Absolutely true. It, it holds its value very, very well. If anybody wants to see a really interesting set of charts on it, go to a website called PricedInGold.com. And they've got all sorts of priced you know, charts of things measured in gold rather than measured in dollars or something like that. Very interesting. 
Now, once we get to, going back to the the, the great cycle again, the uh, once we get past the dark age stage, as it were, we then move into uh, another stage that you call production and first consolidations, and this is the real signs of rebuilding taking place. Right. And this, of course, is where power structures begin to reemerge. And inevitably, conflict does as well. But importantly, it's really limited in its scale and scope. It generally sort of local, so it's not it's not such a problem. So therefore, government and the conflict that they generate aren't really getting in the way. It really is at a time for rebuilding. Oh, a- absolutely. This is where people uh, have become confident in themselves and in what they believe and in what they stand for, um, and they are willing to take initiative. They're not waiting for some, you know, big lord or king or whatever royal guy to give them permission or to say it's okay for us to do this now or to lead them into something new. They're just looking at what needs to be done and creating it themselves. This is how the common law of England really began. This is how the Hanseatic League of of Trading uh, began uh, after our dark ages and a hundred other things. It was people felt confident in what, who they were and what they believed in to simply go out and do what they thought was important to be done rather than waiting around for approvals or permissions or for somebody to point it out to them. It's a big difference in a very, very important way. So say, for example, the last time, if we take where we've arrived now as being sort of a final stage, the production and first consolidation stage. When would you have placed that? You know, in, in the, over the last few centuries, what, what period was was that? Well, I'm looking at this period as somewhere around 1000 A.D., where Western civilization really takes shape and has its own confidence. It is a new and separate thing. Um, what's interesting that comes right before it is an interest in philosophy which nowadays is kind of, who really cares about philosophy nowadays? And those who do, you know, are usually, you know, speaking about very strange, you know, metaphysics and epistemology and funny things that most of us don't understand. Uh, But at those times, it's a big deal because people have lost their old um, intellectual partner, that is the Roman Empire, and they have to come up with something new. And that's why Europe changed from pagan Europe to Christian Europe in just a number of centuries. Because at that moment, people did care about philosophy. And Christianity was simply a better set of ideas. Beyond that stage, we then get into what you uh, label as progressive growth and unification. And this is when the institutions start to gain much more significance. And the state becomes something that we is difficult to avoid. And actually, right. this is this in many ways is where the rot sets in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, as states get larger, they begin to get a much stronger legitimacy. They want people and succeed in getting people to hold them as great legitimate entities. You know, in our Western civilization, power in the early days, again, 1000 AD, 1200 AD, even 1400 AD, power was not territorial power. It was based upon individuals, the lord of this area, the you know lord of that area. And power was, a, was de- defined in personal relationships, not in territorial domination. 
and you would absolutely know the person who was in charge of your area. And you probably wouldn't know the person that he had to deal with above him. Once you get to territorial domination, they really need people to think of them as special or legitimate, uh, that it's God wants them to do this or whatever the, in, whatever the justification is to take your money because most people don't really give things willingly like that. Um, so legitimacy is a real big thing, and this is where legitimacy begins to take hold, and it's where things really start to go downhill. Now, of course, today we, we think of the idea of power being taken by force as something back in the days of Robin Hood or something like that. You know, there's really, today we, in most, you know, certainly developed world, we have democratic governments one form or another, and things aren't done by force unless you're an out-and-out lawbreaker but in many ways a lot of the institutions that we have are they're really just monarchies of the past that have morphed into something else it's almost like the some of the kings and queens have stepped down or stepped into the shadows and the idea of there being no force i often say to people well you'd be amazed at the list of things that you could come up with that you don't have to deviate very far from the norm before force is brought to bear on you so we do live under uh, regimes that, that uh, coerce and use force Yes, absolutely. I, you know, a, a friend of mine made a very good point one day. He says, you know, look at your local town, wherever you are, and you've got a SWAT team. Think about what this is. This is a large armored van with men wearing special high-tech armor, carrying automatic weapons and sticks and shields and uh, pepper spray and everything else, and are trained to assault human beings. Now, they tell you that they're always going after drug dealers and murderers. So, well, you think that's okay. What about if they went after somebody else? It's the same mechanism. What if they decided they were going to go after gay guys? What if they decided they were going to go after the Jews again? What if they, you know, whomever, pick on, pick on your group. It's the same mechanism. It's the same overwhelming use of force. The only difference is who's it directed to. And right now, most people think that it's directed well. But what if it isn't? It's the same force. It's there all the time. And it's much greater now than it ever has been in the past. Um, there are so many different police departments. There are so many jails and so many people in jails for doing nonviolent things. You know, a 19-year-old kid who's smoking some pot. And they're going to lock this kid away in a jail cell? You know, if you don't think it's a good thing to do, talk to the young man and tell him that it, and convince him that it's not good for them. You don't lock them in a cage. But we have a very, very violent society on both sides of the Atlantic. But it's authorized violence, so people kind of think it's okay because it must be the good guys. Well, not always and not necessarily. Now, I'm not trying to say that the suspects, and let's just remind ourselves they are suspects in the recent Boston bombing incident are good guys. Uh, however, we, you saw the mobilization of force when they were trying to track them down. I mean, they had, was it 10,000 troops, helicopters, armored cars? I mean, you could have reenacted the Battle of the Bulge with the, the hardware that they had out there. Oh, absolutely. And the story that came out today, and I haven't, you know, I haven't followed that closely enough to really have a, a firm opinion outside of just, you know, the event was horrific. Um, but it turns out that one of the friends of the supposed bombers, they killed him. The FBI agents killed him. He wasn't armed and he appeared not to have been threatening them, they killed him anyway. But as so many Americans have this uh, idea, no, the FBI are the good guys, 
our armed federal agents are the good guys, a lot of them won't want to question it because it calls too much into question. Now, I read an interesting thing not that long ago uh, regarding the Middle Ages and sort of feudal times, and not very many people, certainly, I think if you did a, a vox pop on the street, would say they'd feel that they'd be better off living in those times. But there's some arguments that in some ways people were, I mean, they might have had sort of, you know, poverty and deprivation up to a point, but in terms of the, you know, coercion and force that was brought to bear on them, they were kind of left to their own devices a lot more because if you then had a very visible king or overlord, he wanted to pass on something to his heirs. He was sort of directly responsible because he was there for life. So he couldn't destroy and ransack everything because there would be nothing to hand on and his own survival could be threatened. And if he pushed his people too hard, for example, with taxation, that would also backfire. He needed to just squeeze them just enough for what they would put up with, you know, maybe 5% a year or something like that. Uh, so he could live off it. But there was more of a, a deal and understanding that, you know, he had a he had an army and he lived there in his castle and people, you know, scratched their living out in the fields. But there was a kind of a, a standoff that worked. And now you have governments that are elected for short periods of time. And what they seem to be about is getting what they can before handing over, you know, the wreckage to the next lot. You know, there's there's a lot of important stuff that you just said right there. That's absolutely true. Uh, you know, we wouldn't want to go back in time because we, you know, we have technology that we really, really like, you know, everything from medicine to air conditioning. We wouldn't want to give it up, understandably. But leaving aside technology, we were far, far freer in our daily lives in 1000 BC than we are now. Immensely freer in our daily lives. You know, the truth is that I have, uh, th there are a lot of people that are living in oh, I don't know, the Philippines, Bulgaria, um, other Eastern European countries, and on a, daily, on a daily basis, they're far freer than Americans are or that, that uh, you know, people in the UK are. They have far less intrusions in their lives. They're left alone to live their lives as they wish. Um, so, you know, it's absolutely true. And the king was responsible. He was personally responsible, whereas now kind of everyone's responsible and really nobody's responsible because supposedly it's, well, all of us who are making the decisions, not guys in the back room, you know, who are letting out the contracts and, you know, to their friends. Uh, supposedly it's all of us because somehow we're making the decisions and there's no one responsible anymore. And when no one's responsible, well, people tend to behave badly. Well, some will think, oh, well, in centuries gone by, uh, the situations we're talking about, you, you were free, yeah, but you know, you were free to be robbed and attacked, you know, highwaymen, bandits. But has anything really changed? You know, we still that still happens. And at this part, it's, that's what part of what freedom is. Part of freedom is the, the idea that someone may randomly attack you or they may rob you. That's always been the case. It has always been the case, and it and it's more true now than it was then. Rates of crime are higher in our general time than they were in, let's call it, 1200 AD. They really are. I mean, if you look at even the American Wild West, you know, where supposedly there's, you know, all these crazy guys running around shooting each other and, uh, and maybe if you're lucky, a good guy rides in to save the day. The levels, the actual levels of violence in the Wild West are lower than American cities are today. And moreover, the guys who actually shot each other 
were all guys who were essentially bad guys. They would, you know, hang out at, you know, the bar at three in the morning and get drunk and shoot each other. Well, the baker and the banker and the guy who runs the general store, they're not hanging out at the at the bad bar at 3 a.m. So it was really a non-issue in a lot of ways to average people. So we are not safer than what it was a thousand years ago, not even close. Now, coming back to this great civilizational cycle again, um, our next stage is one that you call decline and adjustments. Talking about in context of Rome again, uh, that's basically production is declining, productivity is declining, but state state spending, on the contrary, and, and largesse and corruption is actually swelling. The bureaucracy is very bloated. It's very invasive. And this is when things really begin to disintegrate. And there's a culture of dependence on the state. In Rome, we saw that with bread and circuses, as you point out. Today, it's kind of like reality TV and food stamps. Exactly. I, I mean, it's, you know, different flavor, but the same thing. And then stage after that systemic breakdown and basically in the face of corruption collapse people cling on to the old ideas and identities and it's almost like the state structure needs to be preserved at all cost and the mentality is almost like the analogy of crabs in a bucket you know one crab trying to get out you know they're all doomed and one crab's trying to get out of the bucket and it's been you know seen happen other crabs will pull that crab back down and say you're not getting out buddy you're staying with us we're all going down Right. Uh, I, I see this all the time in the States, and I'm sure you see it in the UK, something very similar, is that people don't want to know. Yeah, they kind of know that everything's out of control. They know that the system is a mess, but they really don't want to hear about it. They have too much going on in their life. They have enough problems already. They're too busy. They don't want to think about something else going wrong. And I think deep down, they know that this thing could just fall apart and they are not prepared to face it. So they kind of don't want to see it. I presume you're saying something similar there. Oh, very much so. I mean, I think it's it, it's global now, really, to a greater or lesser extent. I don't think anybody's, I mean, that's the difference between now, I suppose, and even Roman times. The Roman Empire was vast, but it wasn't global. Right. And, you know, with the Internet, uh, you know, the way we all can communicate, I have I'm sure you do. I have friends all over the planet. Well, in the 1970s, that just wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't know these people at all, much less talk to them on a daily or, or very regular basis. Now, fundamentally, uh, people might be, if they've grasped this now, they think, well, why do we keep doing this? We've been doing civilizations rise, they collapse and over and over again, as far back in recorded history as we can see. Surely we're not doomed to do that again. And you point out that it's the tension between fundamental human nature and the nature of institutions that actually drives the cycle. Uh, and institutions are set up and run by individuals, but then they take on a life of their own, the way you describe nobody's responsible. And they're supposed to exist to kind of coordinate individuals and action, but ultimately they end up crushing it. Right. Uh, an institution by its very nature has to overcome the will of individuals and get people in line. Uh, you know, a group of people can get can work pretty well up to about a hundred folks. Uh, we all can understand each other and you know, know each other's preferences, uh, those sorts of things. But once you get above a certain level, the institution makes rules and everybody has to obey the rules. And that always necessarily creates entropy. And we know this because of the things we complain about. 
oh, I had to do this. It was so stupid. It didn't make any sense. But that stupid rule says I have to do it. I'm sorry. We, we do those things all the time. So every time you have an institution, it has to intrude upon the free action of human will. And as it gets more complex and more complex and larger institutions and a tighter web of institutions, it, is, it chokes human will and human energy until the system fails. And we seem to have sort of endless power structures uh, in our societies today and a sort of a hierarchy that's just levels upon levels. And it strikes me that in a more natural, free-flowing system that was really based around human nature and, and what we like to do and what we don't like to do, there would be a lot less levels of hierarchy and a lot fewer power structures. Right. And, and temporary hierarchies, the temporary arrangements that work for a certain group of people or for a certain amount of time or that people move in into and out of as it suits them, um, they would be free, not rigid, to the extent that hierarchies existed. They would, I presume, some still would, but they would be much less and non-rigid. Well, actually, that reminds me, uh, if we think, uh, particularly the temporary aspect, we think about the way a lot of indigenous societies uh, were run. In terms of who led the tribe, that could quite often be temporary based on people's skills and what was called for at the time. Sometimes you might need a man of action to lead the tribe. Other times you might need a great thinker. Um, you know, that could, things could change on that basis. But also to be leader was a great privilege and a great responsibility. And quite often the people who would become the leader would be asked to, to lead would actually give, have to give up something. They'd be less well off in a way why they were leading, but it was because it was the great privilege and responsibility to lead the tribe they would take it. Whereas a lot of our leaders now, it seems to be about, you know, getting their snouts in the trough. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? But yes, in the old days, and again, these were smaller groups. So everybody knew each other. Take a group of 50 people or 100 people. You can know each other. You can interact richly with each other. You, I know what you like. I know what John likes. I know what Mary likes. I know if I, if I make this decision, it'll be bad for Mary. And I can, I can take into account all these people. Once you get above a certain number, you become a type of a dictator. And it's a completely different relationship, and it invariably leads uh, to decreased effectiveness of humans. Now, you outline how if we put our own uh, predicament into this great cycle, how we're basically approaching the collapse stage. And a lot of people will find that that idea resonates with them. And inevitably, we ask, and we, people are asking, is there a way out of this? How can we do things differently? But you point out that really at this stage, reform, which is what a lot of people are talking about, is, is kind of futile. The political, financial, social systems are essentially beyond repair. Yeah, they really are. They're so overgrown and so overblown that nothing's really going to change them. And I understand people wanting to reform them. By and large, they're good people, meaning well, and want life to be better for everybody. And they're trying to fix what they see as broken. And I respect that. But at this period, it doesn't work, and it didn't. It doesn't work in any of the previous examples. Once it gets this far, I like to use the example of Rome. There were hundreds of reformers, good men and women, who wanted to reform Rome, but it never worked, and eventually it just collapsed all the same. But there was another group of people that 
were not trying to reform Rome. They simply ignored it. They separated from it and did their own thing. And they're the ones who came through it intact. And those were, of course, the very early Christians. I'm not speaking of the Catholic Church here. I'm speaking of the primitive, original group of Christians. And they considered Rome, all government really, to be evil, to be contrary to their new way. And they didn't try to fight it. They didn't try to reform it. They simply separated and lived their own way and tried to stay away from it. And they thrived while everything else went down. And I think now in our time, if we want to be healthy and get through this properly, we need to stop wasting all of our time, all of our energy on politics. Um, you know, watching the nightly news, following all the stories. You make yourself miserable doing this and you really accomplish little or nothing. So I think the, the real answer for us in our time is just simply to separate from the system. That means different things to different people and everyone has to work it out themselves. But just get your mind out of the system and stop thinking that politics is the most important thing in the world. It's not. It's trivial bickering of people on, you know, fighting for the proverbial launch chairs on the Titanic. It's not worth, politics is not worth all our time, energy, and passion. There's much more important things in life, and we'd be happier if we just ignored it. Now, just as a side point, does a more complex society necessarily result in, as it were, a longer dark age or recovery period? That's a really good question, and it's it doesn't seem to be uh, so much of a function of that. Uh, all of the societies uh, that get to the point of collapse are pretty complex. What's interesting is what matters on the dark ages is how concentrated uh, people are, if they have room to spread out and leave and go other places. Um, the civilization that had the shortest sort of dark age was the Egyptians. And that was because everybody had to stay right next to the Nile. There were, I mean, out beyond that was just desert. You couldn't go there and survive. So everybody had to stay on the Nile and power was able to reform in maybe a couple of hundred years rather than 400. And it stopped the cycle. It shortchanged the cycle and it, Egypt never got to really um, reset and recharge power formed again before it could really do that and you can see that Egypt after its great flower if you will with the, the pyramids and all the things we remember it never really got going again and that's really a big part of the reason why. Now you mentioned the early Christians as an example of a, a community as it were turning their back on the centralized hierarchy and system and in terms of you know people, more modern examples, uh, people might think of intentional communities, uh, communes, maybe some survivalist compounds or the religious variant of that. Uh, for example, the Branch Davidians at Waco, very famous case. And we know how that ended. So there's kind of a, a bit of a pattern emerges when people try and, in our current context, when people try and take themselves away uh, from the system in that manner. Yeah, it can be a problem. Um... But there have been far more intentional communities, and I'm very glad you brought that up, by the way. There have been far more intentional communities than people really realize. Uh, there are intentional, intentional communities now in the United States. There were hundreds of them 
in the 19th century. Very few people know this, but there were hundreds of intentional communities in the 19th century. Uh, some were religious, some were early socialists. There were all sorts of experiments uh, in those days, and there still are now, and those are the same people. Um, most of the time, it doesn't turn out really badly, thank God, uh, but it, it can at times, and it's, you know, it's a risk. Life is, you know, life has risk on every hand, and sitting, sitting quietly really doesn't remove you from it very much, so better to live. With regards to the Amish, it always interested me. How do you think they have managed to, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a great researcher here, so I don't know the intimate details of the history of the Amish, but how have they managed to keep themselves so separate? Is it almost like they're virtually like a religious designation almost? They get treated uh, with sort of special kid gloves that way? Yes, it is largely uh, religious, at least in the, um, the, you know, the things that are on the public record. The Amish have done well and have been left far more alone than most people, largely because they're good neighbors. They're very different. They're definably different. You see them and you know right away. But they're basically pretty much good people. I mean, they have a few bad guys like anybody does, but they tend to get rid of them. And they are good people and their neighbors respect them. The people around them who know them and trade with them respect them. And the rulers of whatever level had to kind of treat them well because the people around them respected them and you don't want to tick off everybody uh, all at once. So the Amish have more or less survived more or less intact because of their virtues. Something of a side point, but I think it does have great relevance to um, our own predicament. Isn't it interesting how, for example, a community like the Amish or just small indigenous societies or just smaller groups of people deal with criminals? And I'm, by that I mean common criminals, but also, you know, criminals who are trying to set themselves up um, in control of others. Yeah, yeah. And they generally deal with them very well. You know, we're so used to this idea that law is this big centralized thing and there has to be some guy who has, you know, the, you know, the biggest guy has to have the only sword and bring down justice upon everybody else. And it's not really the, the best model for it. It's the model that all of us know, and we have been taught that it's the only model. But decentralized justice and uh, ad hoc justice are actually in many ways better. Um, people you know, come up with things, well, if you do that, something could go terribly wrong. Well, yeah, they could. But things go terribly wrong underneath the existing system every day in large numbers, but we've been conditioned to accept that. And we kind of ignore those horrible things that happen. And then when some new idea, like what you're talking about, how these small groups handle it comes along and say, oh, no, 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 something could go wrong. It's really just people have been conditioned to think of it in a certain way, and also that they don't really want to consider anything new because it requires too much work. Well, all that sort of bureaucracy and unnecessarily unnecessary regulation, that comes under the umbrella of health and safety here in the UK. I don't know if you have a similar branch of government over there, basically, to try and all sorts of absurd things. I mean, this is the branch of government that has, you know, may contain nuts on a bag of nuts and uh, caution hot coffee on a cup of coffee. 
<laughs> right. We have actually a, a few different uh, people that do different groups that do that here, but it's it's this very same effect, and it's just it's just wild. I mean, you would think that nobody had any sense anymore and couldn't think for themselves that you know, gee, hot coffee might be hot, and they have to warn everybody. It's just it's just kind of um, it's bureaucracy going to see. And of course, in terms of, as you say, trying to prevent things going wrong, I mean, the, probably the most glaring uh, example, most expensive example is the so-called war on terror. I don't know at what point all the government and media found that they couldn't say the word terrorism anymore, but it's terror apparently now. I mean, the money that is spent in, in the name of, quote unquote, keeping us safe, when in fact, you know, statistically, you're more likely to die choking on a peanut falling over in the bathtub, but they don't have a war on bathtubs or a war on peanuts. Oh, I know. The whole thing is just, you know, it's fear-mongering and it is taking advantage of people's weakness, taking advantage of their fear and keeping them whipped up. I mean, look, as horrible as the thing in Boston was a few few weeks ago, it was only less than a handful of people died. Now, it really, really, really stinks, but to change an entire civilization because a small number of people die. Well, a small number of people die in car wrecks before breakfast. People have been whipped up and they spend huge portions of their lives just watching television and getting all this stuff downloaded into them. And, you know, you watch, I don't know, I haven't been in the UK in a couple of years, so I don't know what your television is entirely like. But in, in the States and in Europe where I've lived, you know, there's the shows are always, you know, the great cops finding the bad guys and, you know, getting bringing justice. People are so deep into this into this belief that, you know, the state is the great protector and any sacrifice is acceptable and give away your rights. It doesn't matter because there could maybe possibly be a nuke underneath, you know, uh, underneath Earl's court that's going to blow up. And uh, we have to, you know, do everything possible to save lives. But it's really not based on reality. Terrorism is a horrible thing, you know, blowing up buses or, you know, uh, what happened in New York 12, 13 years ago. Horrible stuff. But life is full of terrible stuff. You know, this is a tough world. Has nobody read history? Does nobody realize what's going on before? This is the first time. And do we really think that giving up all of our rights is going to turn out better for us in the end? Well, why did we have them in the first place? Oh, on UK TV, we have American TV, essentially. We have that alphabet soup of programs that are basically all about terrorism, CSI and ABC and XYZ and whatever they are. It's just loads of like square-jawed American heroes just leaping into cars and zooming around the place and torturing people. Right, we call it cop worship TV. (laughs) We <laughs> yeah, well, very good. It's exactly what it is. You know, it's like uh, glamorizing authority, basically. Yeah, it, it's just out of proportion. And like you say, the amounts of money that are being spent on it and what happens to the poor soldiers. You know, I, I know lots of soldiers and I know a lot of military people. Uh, these some of these are, you know, they're kids, really. And they're, you know, they see what happened on 9-11 and they're upset and they want to bring justice. And I understand that. That's a good and healthy impulse. But they're sending these kids out into places, I mean, they're getting arms blown off and legs blown off and watching their friends get blown off or having to kill people. These things ruin human beings. 
and uh, you know they're coming back and they're dying, and they're killing themselves. There's a lot of suicides among uh, among returning soldiers. Uh, these guys are the real worst victims of the whole thing, and you know, and here in the states, they're not taking care of them very well. I talk, you know, I, I know people in that world, and these people coming back are not getting proper treatment, and it's just it's horrific what happens to them, and they're really the worst. Now, overall, to zoom back out again and just look at civilization as a whole, what, what you're advocating really is, is voluntary societies. And some people may say, well, surely that's what we have. You know, we vote for politicians. And in terms of voluntary, well, I go out, I go down the street, I go to the store, I go to the bar, I go to the cinema. And, you know, mostly nobody's harassing me. It is voluntary. But as I mentioned earlier, there's an amazing number of things that, that where coercion and control will be brought to bear if you step ever so slightly out of line. And the way of living where you would say, look, I don't want to give anything to a state. I don't want anything from a state. Leave me alone. That's, for most people, seemingly impossible. Oh, it's, it's illegal. Uh, you're allowed, you know, you're allowed to make your choices within certain limits. Let's take two polar opposite political uh, stances. Um, let's take the person who opposes abortion, who thinks that it's it's a bad and ugly thing. Is it moral to take this man or woman's money by force and spend it on abortion? It's not. And on the other side of the coin, take the young man or woman or whomever who thinks that people should be allowed to smoke marijuana if they want to. It's their life and they're not hurting anybody and they should be left alone. Is it right to take their money to hire policemen or agents to sneak up on people and threaten them with violence and beat the hell out of them and lock them in a cage? That's an immoral thing to do with their money. So whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, you're not allowed to choose. Your money is taken from you. You have no choice in the matter. Otherwise, you could end up in big, big trouble. Uh, and it's spent on things that you think are immoral. This is not a voluntary we have it's a big problem that's facing us your newsletter basically offers a lot many many different types of ideas and information some of which can lead people to uh, perhaps seeing how they can make you know a different life for themselves even within this system because it doesn't have to be everything all at once it can be areas right. of er, areas of your life where you can begin to make changes and also in, in terms of preparing for what's coming down the line um, I mean and sort of areas I'm thinking of would be how you organize your food supply, your shelter, where you get your energy from, your personal economics, you know, how you earn money, what type of money you use, all sorts of issues like that, I mean, healthcare, education, it goes on and on. These are all areas that we can make different choices in. Absolutely. And it's very, very important that we do. The mistake that a lot of good people make is that they say, yeah, things should be different. Yeah, we really should live differently. Yeah, okay, well, I'm going to study it for a year and then decide what to do. And then one year becomes two, becomes three, becomes five. What's important is that people act, whatever it may be. Let's say you decide that government schooling is a bad idea. Um, you research the origins of it back uh, in the 1800s. You research uh, how it's designed and why. And you say, no, 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 this isn't good. Uh, I don't want to do this. Well, then act. Then homeschool your children. or Find a group of people that are schooling their children in a way that you think is better, but do something. Even if you act and you're not 
and you choose wrongly. You pick something that doesn't turn out quite so well. At least you're active, and you can always adapt, and you can always do something else. The great problem is sitting still and not doing anything. So in any of these areas, I am thrilled when people are active doing something rather than just sitting in the cloud. Now, I want to ask you briefly about monetary reform, because that's one of my main areas, you know, is how our economic system works, because it seems to be sort of, a, it's been a rolling crisis now since, you know, 07, 08. Where do you see that going? Because I have a feeling that mathematically the system is bound to collapse, but then collapse in quotes, what does that look like? Is it actually going to be a wake up one morning and the ATMs don't work? Or, you know, is reform going to be forced on the system because the way things are going? Or are the sort of powers that would be going to find just another way to keep this Ponzi scheme going? <laughs> you ask great questions and hard ones, too. <laughs> um, the, uh, you're right. The system as it is cannot continue forever. It, it is. It's simply mathematics. Uh, the way money is created, our currency is created, is absolutely horrifying. When you, when you actually see what it is and how it actually works. It's too much to explain right now. But when the first time you actually get it and see where, you know, in my case, dollars come from, you go, no, 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 that, that can't be true. It couldn't be that way. That's not possible. They would never do that. But they do. So it's, it's a fraudulent money monopoly from the beginning. Um, and it's, you know, it's built on a model that has to eventually collapse. The two main ways of collapse uh, that seem the most likely are inflation and deflation. Inflation, if they just keep printing money, eventually, you know, the price of a hamburger, you know, is 100 pounds. And then it's 500 pounds. And the value of money just goes to almost nothing. The other way it could go would be a deflationary collapse where nobody's spending anymore and prices drop and anybody who's got a loan is in deep trouble because you took out a uh, 200,000-pound loan on, on, your, on your house while you were making 100,000 pounds a year and now you're making 20,000 pounds a year. How are you going to pay off that loan? Those are the two primary methods that it collapses. And it's really hard to say at this point which one it will be. There are so many games being played behind the scenes. Right now, the uh, Federal Reserve is printing $85 billion per month and injecting it into the markets, buying up people's mortgages, things like that. Not to mention the U.S. government, one point some trillion dollars a year in deficit spending. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a house of cards that can't stand forever. I only wish I knew precisely when and how it would fall. In terms of uh, just sticking with money, in terms of kind of trying to do something different, stepping out of the system, um, I had great hopes for Bitcoin, uh, though I noticed that there was a sort of that artificial bubble was created there, I think. I'll get your take on this, but I think to scare people away from it. And then, of course, there seem to be moves now to make some sort of Bitcoin foundation, uh, which, again, would be centralized control completely against the spirit of it. And if you were a conspiracy theorist, you might say, well, the Bitcoin foundation is the system getting in to undermine this potentially independent thing. <laughs> your analysis is very good. Um, I am, yeah, I, I am still very, very... Uh 
keen on, on Bitcoin. It's decentralized money and it's working surprisingly well. Yeah, there was there was you know a bubble. There was a bubble at about thirty dollars too. Nobody remembers that now, uh, but it went up from oh gosh, I don't recall fifty cents to thirty dollars, and then it crashed back to three dollars or something. And you know, of course, then it began its upward cycle again. So you know when you have real unregulated markets, that sort of thing happens, especially when it's a new thing, a new type of currency. Bitcoin has been attacked lately. Um, the banking system, the banks and the governments, they're, you know, they're, they're partners really. Um, that whole team has been going after them. They've been taking down the online exchanges because it's easy to do. You know, it's a very interesting thing when you say, well, why are they attacking this stuff? It's a peaceful currency. It doesn't cost anybody anything. If you don't like it, you don't have to use it. Why must they attack this thing? What does it say about them in their currency that they have to violently attack this new tiny little currency compared to them? Um, that's very tough. But Bitcoin, uh, again, excites me because there are so many young people who are active in the Bitcoin community. These kids are, are writing new programs, uh, modifying Bitcoin, making overlays for Bitcoin. Uh, exchanging Bitcoin, you can you can meet people at a local Starbucks or a local a local pub and buy and sell Bitcoins with them. Um, it's done all the time, and there are all these people who are active doing it, and that to me is the real exciting part of the whole thing. You know, human beings actively seeking liberty and seeking to live in better ways. Boy, that's the cure for just about everything. Now, one of the things that uh, gets talked about sometimes in alternative circles is relocation. Uh, there are people who are advocating that for, particularly for people living in, in areas like North America and uh, you know in, within the EU and what have you. And there's others who say, well, really, effectively today, there is nowhere to run. I mean, countries, I've read articles recently on Costa Rica, on the Philippines, a lot on Chile actually is perhaps a good place for more freedom-minded people to go. I mean, I was in Iceland a couple of years ago, quite like the look of that. But uh, what's your take? I mean, not necessarily what you've personally done, but just on the whole issue of, of relocation. Well, it's an interesting subject, and there are points pro and con. Uh, you mentioned several of them. Um, one thing is that it's, it's good for people to get away and go live somewhere else for a while. It's just internally, it's, it's good for us to get out of all, you know, the expectations that, that form around us over, over years and years. It's good to pull yourselves out of it from time to time and go somewhere else. Another interesting thing about relocating is that you often, strange as it sounds, you're often treated better as a foreigner than you are as a local. You are left alone more. And the world is a very large place. And there's all sorts of things that you that are legal in one place that are aren't in another. So let's say you are somebody who really likes uh, smoking cannabis. Okay? You can move to Amsterdam. I guess Amsterdam's not quite as good as it used to be, but you can move to California, and you can smoke all the cannabis you want there. Maybe you prefer uh, different sorts of monetary freedom that's more important for you. Well, you can pick places like, oh, Hong Kong or Singapore or places where there's far less regulation or, you know, all sorts of options. And some of them are very good for people. 
On the other hand, as you mentioned, there really isn't any place that's all that great anymore. In the 17th century, people could escape to North America, and a lot of people did. Uh, a million or, or, or more, probably, Northern Europeans primarily, uh, England and uh, Holland and, and other places, Germany, came to North America precisely because they were running away from the governments that were oppressing them in Europe, in the old world. So there was a place to run away to in those days. America in the 1700s was a wilderness. Uh, there, King George was a long, long way away and had very little power, if any, in, in the frontier areas, and people could go and live as they wished. You can't do that anymore. Everywhere you go, there has this thick web of government that controls everything from, you know, you're not allowed to drive a car unless you tell us, you know, who you are, where you live, and sign this, you know, such and such, and, and let us take your picture and fingerprint you, and you have to keep our rules and pay us so much every year, or you can't even have a car. It's not enough that you just buy it from somebody voluntarily. No, 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 you have to jump through all of these hoops and pay us all these fees. That exists everywhere. So there's really, outside of, you know, places like the Act, Antarctic, where they would probably come and drag you away anyway, there's nowhere really to go at the moment. One of these days, space will open up again, and people will run away again. Well, just in closing, Paul, uh, perhaps in regards to everything we've been talking about, you could give us your your sentiments on what you're seeing uh, from people you're in contact with, your readers, anybody you're communicating with, in terms of, there does seem to be a gathering awakening to how things are, what's really going on. But there also seems to be a number of people who seem to be going ever more into a media-induced coma, seemingly as some sort of protective measure for themselves. I just don't know what you see a decade from now. Boy, that's a great question again. Um, I see things both good and bad. Uh, The internet is a problem. It has been turned into a surveillance web, and it is being turned into a manipulation web. Uh, The internet was the greatest thing that, well, in my lifetime at least, that ever happened for human liberty. Oh my God, what a what a wonderful, wonderful thing. But it has been taken over, it is now fully a surveillance web, and it is turning into a manipulation web. So that's the negative side. It can still be used for a number of things, but don't ever think that there's any such thing as, as privacy on the internet, not unless you not unless you either work for it or pay for it. But the explosion that we had from the internet has just been stunning. When I, let's say 1990, I knew the Liberty people of 1990, and there weren't many of them. And who they were were primarily overeducated guys, you know, in New York or Los Angeles, maybe a couple in Chicago, a few in Minneapolis. But they were all these hyper-educated analytical types. Well, now, there are people who understand liberty better than those guys did, who are living in Homer, Alaska, Tyler, Texas, Topeka, Kansas, little tiny towns that, unless you've lived in the area, you've never even heard of. And they're full of young people who get it. The Ron Paul candidacy this last time and the time before, there were thousands of young people following around this old doctor to hear him lecture about the Federal Reserve. In 1990, that was unthinkable. 
so that it happened. It happened slowly, so we didn't appreciate it, but it's miraculous. And that's just in the political domain. In a, in a dozen other areas, people are starting to wake up. It's not enough yet for it to really be seen clearly and for it to see it everywhere, but it's going on every day. This didn't happen 20 years ago, and I think we're going to have more of it in 10 years. And if we do have more of it in 10 years and 20 years, then we might be okay in the end. I mean, if we can get through this next, whatever it is, this next period of time uh, with government structures and violence just going crazy, if we get through that, we're golden. The future is magnificent. We just have to get rid of this self-denial of will and judgment. Once we get past that, we're great. Excellent. Paul, well, just in closing, if perhaps you'd like to share with listeners your website, a bit of information about your newsletter, and you've also got uh, CryptoHippie.com, of course. Right. Uh, sure. Thank you. Um, the website for the newsletter is FreeMansPerspective.com, just the way it sounds, FreeMansPerspective.com. And um, we have all sorts of free articles, and then we have a monthly uh, premium newsletter. What we really cover, we cover everything about life and liberty except for politics and uh you know daily economic problems we're not giving you stock picks we're not you know talking about the politician du jour we're talking about history philosophy life contentment um you know the things you mentioned earlier how to arrange your life with food and currency to take back your control of your own life and to enjoy your own and my other business is uh, called Crypto Hippie, CryptoHippie.com, just kind of the way it sounds, C-R-Y-P-T-O-H-I-P-P-I-E. Um, and what we do is we provide real privacy on the internet. We run a very special sort of computer network, a lot of cryptography, things like that, and we protect your privacy on the internet. Um, there are ways that it can be done for free, but it requires a lot of time and effort to do it right, and you have to do it right or not at all. Um, in our system, you have to pay for it, but it does it for you without having a 15-minute setup, rather than having to pay attention to security all the time. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs and many equally interesting and fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>